Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today, we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz, best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. Our special guest today is Frank Stifel, a photographer and Oscar-winning filmmaker who was an executive in the TV commercial industry for 35 years. In 2009, he directed Ingalora, a documentary about his mother, a Jewish Holocaust survivor. The film screened at festivals internationally and appeared on HBO from 2010 to 2012. It was honored by the International Documentary Association, the Museum of Modern Art, and Berlinale. In 2012, Frank began filming the artist Mindy Alper for the documentary Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405. The film received many awards, including the Oscar for the Best Short Subject Documentary Film at the 90th Academy Awards. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for the introduction, and thank you, Frank, for joining us today. I love your work, and I'm super excited to have the opportunity to speak with you today. And um, to start with, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you transitioned into documentary filmmaking and how your past experience was beneficial. Um, How did I transition into documentary? You know, like just about everything that, that's, that's ever happened in my career at all, um, it, was, it was sort of an accident. <clears throat> um, the specific story is um, my, mother, uh, my mother was a, Jewish, a deaf Jewish Holocaust survivor. Uh, she hadn't been in a, a camp or anything. But the, thought, the thing that made it interesting was that uh, nobody would speak to her. So as things were changing in Germany... Uh, rapidly. Uh, she had no knowledge of what was going on. She had impressions of what was happening to her. And um, so I grew up with those stories, but, um, you know, you always hear your parents' stories when you're too young. Um, you haven't done any reading. You, uh, you've, you know, you, you're, you're as sympathetic as a gnat. Um, and you're hearing these stories without any sense of what came before what. <clears throat> and then um, through a very circuitous story, my, my mother was invited to give a lecture at NTID, which is a, a deaf university in Rochester, New York. And, um, and I flew there to, to listen to her. I mean, my mother's had probably a total of three years of education. So for her to be lecturing at a university, I thought was pretty astounding. And, um, and I went to that lecture just, you know, as a matter of support more than anything. And she began that lecture with, uh, hello, my name is Ingalora Hertz-Honigstein. I was born October 27, 1924. And she took you t- from that moment to today. And it was the very first time I'd ever heard her story done in a linear fashion. 
And suddenly all of those disparate pieces sort of fit together. And I sort of, and I now saw that history in a very clear uh, beginning, middle and end. And at some point as I was listening to it, I thought, well, this is a film. Um, and, you know, sort of forgot about it. And, uh, and at one point thought, well, uh, who am I going to get to do that? I was a producer. Uh, you know, I owned a production company that made TV commercials and, uh, and sort of, you know, over the course of the next year, I just took notes. I had never made a film. Um, I'd never seen myself as, as a director. Um, I was an executive producer. There were directors that we had, uh, contracts with, and, um, I certainly knew what a director did. Um, and then after a year of writing notes, um, I decided that I would move ahead and make a film with no particular plan. Um, you know, my plan was, uh, to make a film that, uh, that my, my kids would have. So they, you know, she was at a point where she was healthy and she, uh, she was clear. And I just wanted my kids to have a record of who their grandmother was. And, um, and that was it. That was my big plan. And uh, so I invited her. She was living in Florida. She, I invited her out here. Um, we did the interview. Uh, we did it in sign language, and we did it orally. And, um, and then, you know, from there, it was, you know, we went back to her village in Germany, and, um, and it became this thing that got bigger. And... Um, you know, and then it became something. It, it was sort of the biggest shock in both of our lives. Um, and uh, the last few years of her life, actually, we had spent, you know, a considerable amount of time traveling with the film. Um, so this story that had never been told suddenly was out. And um, she was embraced, and there were articles written about her. And uh, it was a pretty amazing life altering thing for both of us well that i guess when you have a great story within the family it makes sense that you would be the one to tell it and i would love it if you would just remind everyone what the title is also where they can see it and then i would like to talk a little bit about the particular challenges you faced telling the story and how you overcame them so the name of the uh, film is ingalora which was her name um there actually isn't, a, you know, there is not an online way to see it. Um, uh, sort of made it, got involved in the excitement of, uh, of traveling with it. Um, life got in the way. I, I made a second film and just sort of, I uh, never actually put it online. Um, uh, the challenges. Um, wow. Um, Challenges were, <clears throat> I mean, there are production challenges. You know, when, okay, let me, I, I, can, I can tell this story for a long time, so it's cut me off. Um, so part of this was, this is, you know, this didn't have, I was not about to, to do anything that was going to plus my career. I didn't have a career. I didn't want a career. I wanted to make this film. And, um, and as a consequence, uh, you know, you... Um, when you when you make TV commercials, you're you know you're buying the best of the best. You're buying the best cinematographers and <clears throat> and the best crew people you possibly can. When you're self-funding a film about your mother that you're going to give to your kids, 
it's a whole different game. And, um, and so uh, the editor that worked on it had just been promoted from uh, being an assistant. The, um, the person who wrote the music was 15 years old. Um, wow. you know, everybody, all of us, you know, everybody that was involved in the making of that film was, was swimming in water that was much too deep. You know, none of us had actually ever played in this, you know, in this. And, it, and the fact is that everybody did do their best work. You know, the, the greatest capability we all had at that point, I think, went into the film. And, um, and it became this thing. Uh, um, it, it is, you know, it is the favorite of the, of the two films for me. Um, and, uh, and the challenges of it are, you know, some were, were the, uh, the challenges of making a, a personal film. Um, part of, you know, there was one part of the film where she was being chased through Berlin, uh, by two Nazi cadets. Um, and uh, and eventually raped. So um, I can remember, you know, sitting uh, sitting in this, this very chair I'm sitting in right now, and listening to that story over and over again. So I could picture how um, I was going if I was going to reenact it, how it would be. So so trying to picture your mother's rape is an experience that I don't suggest to anybody else. Um, so there were personal, you know, there were there were, you know, the, the there were the challenges of making something about somebody that uh, you you really care for, and um, uh, you know, and you just you know sort of uh, need to feel it, and then you need to sort of do what you have to do in order to make the film. And could you talk a little bit about filming reenactments? And in your experience, what the pros and cons are of working with actors versus interviewing people about their lives? Yeah, um, there, there were a couple of scenes in, in the telling of her story that were just so rich um, that I felt, you know, there, there was, you know, there, were, uh, there was obviously no footage of, of some of the stuff that happened. Um, and I couldn't find, and every time I listened to her story, every time I listened to, to her, her monologue, you know, I just, it just went to reenactment. Um, I, I, I think that reenactments for the most part don't work. Um, and, <clears throat> and I think one of the reasons they don't is because too much attention is paid to them. Um, I was working at an, you know, it, if I were producing a, uh, a period reenactment for uh, a film or a commercial, um, you would have the expertise of, uh, you'd have a production department, a production designer, you'd have a cinematographer, you'd have all, you'd have period cars, you'd have period wardrobe, you'd have extras. And, and I think all of that works against you because once you've got all of that stuff, um, you feel as if you need to show it. And, and as a consequence, the cinematographer will light all of that stuff. Um, I think that one of the reasons these reenactments worked is because, A, there was no, I, I didn't uh, give anybody a li any lines to say. They were all MOS. And the other is that, um, that there were no uh, period cars and period wardrobe and uh, uh, and extras and uh, 
um, and signage that was redone for the period, et cetera, et cetera. We had to be crafty. Um, there was no lights, and um, <clears throat> and as a consequence, it feels more thrown away. It feels realer. Um, and um, and so, you know, uh, an actor will go in and out of in and out of the light, but that's the way it feels right. Um, we were um, we were shooting in contemporary Berlin. Um, I remember sort of um, shooting something, and there were mercury vapor lamps in the distance, which obviously were incorrect. I took the there's a position that you very often, if you're looking, for example, at a a Ridley Scott movie, those are extremely well researched. He does history extremely well. Um, and they're very, very accurate. Um, I didn't have nearly the budget to do that. And so if the standard for that kind of filmmaking is to do it perfectly, the standard that I took was to not get caught doing it badly. And so long lenses were used so that I didn't necessarily see what was going on in the background. Um, I just mentioned the, you know, the mercury vapor lamps that I was shooting a scene on. So you shoot that in long lens. You then uh, it was during during this this chase. Uh, uh, the next scene was uh, a shot that I did running toward a historical lamp. So we've got running on a on a on a bridge that uh, uh, that has mercury vapor lamps, which are incorrect. But you now cut to a shot of uh, uh, a, a a shot of of a camera rushing toward another lamp and you buy it and so there were all of those kinds of cheats that happened when you know we didn't have permits we didn't have lights we didn't have anything we broke into places in order to uh i remember climbing over a fence uh to get to a staircase that uh, climbing a, a a uh over a construction fence where uh where they were renovating part of the museum at night uh, and shooting it there and then climbing over and not getting caught. And that was part of the joy of, of making it was to do it. You know, I'm, you know, my, my training is to do it correctly. And this was doing it film school style. Well, uh, you would never know all of these things without it wasn't properly funded because it looks, you know, great. And you mentioned earlier, it's not streaming um, right now, but as was mentioned in the intro, it was on HBO at one point. So I wouldn't want anyone to think it wasn't, a, you know, sophisticated, well done production because it is. And I'm wondering how long it took to make the film. And you already mentioned, of course, that it was a, you know, a passion project that you self-funded, but how long did it take to make it? It took, we shot the, um, the interview in January, we shot the German section in April. Um, it probably took about, you know, six, eight months of shooting on and off. At that, at that point, I was an executive producer of a, a, a large production company. And um, so, and everybody had another job. You know, as I said, the editor uh, had just been promoted from assistant. The, uh, um, the composer had had high school homework um and so we chipped away at it <clears throat> and uh and because of that because you know because everybody was busy doing something else um i remember saying to the group uh look 
I'm going to, I'm going to, the IDA, the International Documentary Association has a competition. Um, last day that I can submit this is May something or other, and I'm going to submit it in whatever form it's in. So let's try and bring it to as close to a finished project as we can. And, and it was a device. I just wanted to get people focused on, on actually getting this work done. And, and in fact, I did submit it to the IDA. And they had a, at the time, they had a competition called DocuWeeks, where they, I think they invited the 52 best docs of the, of the year that year. And, uh, and I submitted it, you know, because I said, you know, I would, and I wanted to get everybody focused on getting the work done. And then months later, you know, getting an email saying congratulations. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, it's got a great look, I think. And I think part of the look that it has, I think part of the success of it was that we didn't have enough money. And as a consequence, those reenactments were, um, uh, were you know, they, they weren't precious. They felt real. Well, uh, I'm sure indie filmmakers everywhere will will love hearing that not having enough money can be um, advantageous. <laughs> and for you, what was the most meaningful part of sharing it with audiences? Well, <clears throat> you know, it was, like I said, it was really so personal. And then, you know, recognizing, uh, you know, uh, my wife and I refer to the uh, traveling with the film, as, you know, it, Suddenly, we were being invited everywhere to to show it, and uh, um, and so we we refer to this period as the Oprahization of my mother, um, who during the Q and A's initially was shy. By you know, by by the time this tour you know got to the middle of it, she was just you know loving being on stage. So um, so that was great. Um, and 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 seeing her get the recognition that she got was just great. Well, I'm glad she got to have that experience. It's wonderful that you could do that for her, and also that you could preserve uh, this piece of history um, for audiences. Yeah. So, um, before we move on to your next film, I did want to um, take a moment. And normally, I would feel like it's rude to ask someone about this, about the age they got started as a documentary filmmaker. But in your case, if you're comfortable <laughs> discussing it, I, I feel like it's a really compelling part of your story. And um, obviously, we, we've already covered the fact that you, you know, you already had a, a, a company that was doing commercials and whatnot. Could you talk a little bit about um, you know, your age when you started doing documentaries? Sure. Um, I think I started shooting... Um, I started shooting Ingalora sometime in my 60s. <clears throat> uh, so I think I was probably 63, 65 when, uh, when it was done. Um, again, this is not part of anybody's plan. Um, by the way, um, sincerity counts. Um, I think one of the reasons that it succeeded and the next film succeeded was because I sincerely wanted the, these two stories to be told. Uh, they were both people who I, I, you know, I, I felt a great deal of simpatico with. Um, I, I loved their stories. I loved them. Um, and I think that, uh, and I think that 
part of what made them work was the sincerity in which I approached it. So I fin- so back to age. Um, I finished that probably around uh, 63 or so. I was 63 at that point. I resigned my, you know, my day job and um, uh, and decided that this was far more fun than uh, than running a company. And um, and so um, for, you know, at that point, we were traveling around uh, in support of the film. Uh, and at some point, I met uh, an artist named Mindy Alper. And, um, you know, I was looking for something to do. Uh, I didn't know a thing about her. Um, and But I became curious. And, um, and so I asked whether I could hang around. And that was what began the second film. Uh, that film took a number of years because <clears throat> sort of life interfered uh, in, in, in that. Uh, uh, that film is about some, an artist with uh, a, a, a extreme anxiety and depression issues. Uh, at some point, she had a breakdown. At some point, at, during, the, during the making of this, she had a breakdown. Uh, I got lung cancer. The editor um, had a child. Um, so there was a lot of life that interfered with it. And so it took, you know, probably about four years. Um, and, um, and it just sort of started and stopped and started and stopped. And, uh, um, and it's one of the advantages of, uh, of working on your own pace. Not, there wasn't a due date. I wasn't working for somebody. And so this film, which is one of my all-time personal favorite films, um, Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405, um, when you made this, you wore several hats, um, including directing, producing, shooting. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the pros and cons of that and which aspects of those different um, duties you enjoyed the most. Um, So... um... So I made the uh, the film about my mother, and um, and I excused myself. You know, again, I I've been you know, I probably spent forty years uh, being in the commercial production business, and so I excused myself all of the overages. It was a film about my mother. It was about my family. It was about giving it to my kids. Uh, when I quit and decided to do this, I thought, well, I, I really do need a strategy for figuring out how I'm going to continue to do this and, uh, uh, and afford it. And so um, I figured, well, the only way this is going to really work is if I do everybody's job. And, um, and so I was comfortable with cameras. I'd always uh, um, had photo, given myself photographic projects and had, you know, museum shows on, on that, so I was comfortable with with cameras, uh, and uh, and so I did. You know, I found myself. You know, I knew how to produce, um, and and so you know, I owned the. You know, I owned probably. Uh, you know, a cinematographer friend of mine says there is no equipment that is too shitty for Frank to use, um, and it's true. Um, you know, I, I I'm not a big believer in expensive toys. Um, and uh, and so um, I just taught myself how to do everybody's job. The t- you know the few jobs that I I knew I couldn't and wouldn't 
where I needed an editor. I needed somebody who was a dispassionate viewer of the footage that wasn't me uh, and in uh, music. Um, uh, uh, Heaven was probably, I, I probably shot over 90% of that by myself. Um, the interviews were done with two cameras. And so uh, I hired a friend to, to be the cinematographer on those. He was just, you know, running the two cameras while, so I could focus on, on the interview. Uh, other than that, I shot it all uh, and did my own sound. And, uh, uh, and that was just, you know, the way, the way it was just the process by which, you know, that film had to be made and all the other, you know, whatever else I did was going to have to be made that way. Um, what are the jobs that I like? You know, the thing about cinematography is that it's a legitimate craft. Um, you can question what a producer does. You can question at times what a director does. Um, the footage is either, you know, is, is either there or not. You know, you either could identify the best light or you couldn't. You frame it a particular way or, you know, you framed it well so that, uh, you know, recognizing how you want the, uh, the viewer's eye to move through the scene. Um, you have a cut in mind and therefore uh, that dictates how you, you know, how you frame. Um, so I, I enjoy the cinematography uh, and, uh, and the rest of it, you know, I, um, it's all, you know, I, I sort of enjoy all of it, uh, but I particularly like the thing about the about cinematography is at the end of the day, you know what you did. Um, you don't know what you did as a director until you've all cut it together. That makes sense. I'm here. Just to confirm. Okay, great. All right. Um, and could you talk just a little bit about the logistics? Like, for example, how many times did you interview Mindy? And um, approximately how much footage did you shoot? I don't know whether I have a footage count. I, I would say, uh, so the, the, so the, um, uh, the way that film came together, you know, so I didn't know a thing about her. Um, this is uh, an artist. Uh, the, the way I was introduced to her is my wife is an artist in the same studio. And she would come home and talk about this woman that, was, that wouldn't speak to anybody, uh, that quietly sat in the back of the studio and made this amazing stuff. And, um, and there was a group show, and uh, I saw her, her, her work, and I was just knocked out. And, and now we were sort of part of a... Uh, social group that went to some of the same art openings and, uh, you know, and I found that, you know, we laughed at all the same stuff, um, which to me is about as close to God as you ever get. You find somebody who laughs at the same stuff you do, hold on. Do not let them go. And so um, uh, I became curious as to who this person was and how this art came to be and, uh, um, and so, um, at one point I, yeah, I knew she was working on this epic paper mache sculpture of her, uh, psychiatrist, uh, and, um, a piece that ended up being eight feet tall, a bust that was eight feet tall. And so I asked whether she would let me just hang out and film her making it. And I would show up, you know, once a week, twice a week and just, you know, watch her at 
put uh, paper mache down layer after layer, and we speak a little bit. And, uh, and so I, it, from, out of that, I asked whether I could do an interview. Again, I knew nothing about her. And, um, and we, you know, she came to trust me more. Um, there was a second interview. There were ultimately six interviews. Um, as this story, which has a great deal of shame attached to it for, for her and her family, became um, more and more revealed. And, um, and so I'm going to guess that there was something like uh, 15, 20 hours of interview that went into a 40-minute film. Um, but that was just, you know, Mindy being who she is just, you know, was not going to ever give it up quickly. Um, she, you know, it was just, it was parsed out slowly. Um, and, uh, and it was complicated by her mother being alive and her mother being this vested in, um, uh, in lionizing uh, her husband who had actually been abusive. Um, so, you know, I was in the thick of, uh, of, of a family secret and, and it just took time to reveal it. Well, the film is absolutely brilliant, and I have to say I love Mindy's art, and it's really a testament to both of you that you were able to create this safe space where she felt comfortable talking and, and um, sharing and discussing these personal, you know, hurtful things that had happened to her. I I also want to add, I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I really do encourage it, but um, I'm a film professor, and one of my students in a class where I showed it, a male student actually was by the end in tears watching this film because it was just so moving the way, you know, the way you told the story. So it's just incredibly well done. And um, We got a I'm, lot of, you know, Mindy got a lot of uh, – you know, I mean, it was obviously there. It was revealed. You know, it became an Academy Award-winning film. Um, a lot of people saw it. Um, she got emails and texts and notes from people all over the world who said, "I've never saw myself in a movie before I saw this film." And so, uh, you know, it was it was a pretty, you know, it was it was emotional for for both of us to realize that it had landed so hard on people. Um, and, uh, and the best part of that is that Mindy became a friend. Mindy is family. She's here for Thanksgiving. She's here for, you know, Christmas. Uh, we saw her night before last. Um, so she, you know, it, it took a while to sort of um, to have this, this very quiet, very introverted person break out. Uh, but she's great. She's, she's a pal. I'm so glad that you're able to have that relationship. And I just, I have so many questions, but I, I do want to ask you the year that you were shortlisted for an Oscar, you had just fierce competition from films created by companies with the deep pockets, for example, Netflix and the New York times Opdocs, And they have the ability to just spend so heavily on PR to get recognition for their films and as an indie filmmaker who, you know, as you've mentioned, you didn't have the resources, um, you know, even to hire a range of people. You you had to roll up your sleeves and do the work yourself. So um, how how did you compete for media attention um, under the circumstances? Well, imagine imagine you've got the New York Times as films in, in competition, and they have the New York Times. 
Um, right. So aside aside from budget, they actually own the media. Um, so what what happens at the the um, the the Oscar race is um, you 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 have to qualify to get on on the Academy list. Um, there were a number of ways to qualify. Uh, we we qualified. You're supposed to. I think there were 26 film festivals, and if you won any one of them, you were on the list. Um, we won two of them. And so uh, the list that year was, I think, 78 films. Um, and so I thought, Jesus, I mean, I can't imagine anybody saw 78 short short films, short docu- documentaries. So what's the object? And this is where being in, in advertising for 40 years, you know, just sort of um, changes the way you, you look at things. And I thought, well, okay, so they've got the New York Times. They've got, and, and you know, and, and uh, a media fr- friend of mine in the media, you know, um, estimated that Netflix spent a million and a half dollars on on their academy uh, uh, on wanting on wanting to, to 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 get nominated and and win. And I thought, well, how do I compete with this? And I thought, well, what do I have? Well, I've got this crazy title. I've got Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405. The 405 in LA is the, you know, every city has the dreaded road. Uh, the 405 in Southern California is that. It's, you know, it's always packed. And, uh, and I thought, okay, well, in an ideal world, what would I do? Well, in an ideal world, if I had all the money in the world, um, and if it were possible, I would buy billboards on the 405. The two problems here is that I don't have that money, and they don't have billboards on the 405. Okay, so that idea is not going to work. And so you start to go through the scenario of how this could work. And ultimately, what I came to realize was I just wanted you, if you were a voter, I wanted you to look at 78 names and find that my name, Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405, is familiar. And, um, and go, I, I know something about that. So could I do something that would have that title stick out amongst a list of 78 names? And so I had lawn signs made. No dot com, no call to action. The lawn sign merely said the name of the title of the film. Heaven is a traffic jam on the 405. And my wife and I would drive around at night and I would hammer those into the ground near the entrances and exits of the 405, the 10, and the 101 freeway. And all I wanted you to do as you were going by at 15 miles an hour exiting or entering the the road is to just see it, not not question why it is, and and just see it so that a certain percentage of that population would be voters, and whether they recognize it or not, it might seem familiar. And the way I knew that this worked was I had a, a doctor's appointment. And uh, he said, well, you know, he's making conversation at the end of it. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to get some attention for the film I made. And uh, he said, what's the name of it? I told him the name. He said, oh, yeah, I've heard of it. And I thought to myself, there's not a chance in life you've heard of it. Tell me how you get to work. What's your commute? And he told me, what he, and I told him where the sign was. And so that is exactly the way it worked, was that it, it registered as being 
a familiar enough name to be looked upon when you look at 78 other names, 77 other names that you've never heard of. It was the name, it was the title that you would look at and say, I know something about this. I'll look at this film. And that's the way it worked. Frank, this is one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard. Um, you, I, it sounds like you could give a master class on, uh, on trying to get a film, um, the, the film recognized by the, by the Academy. It's absolutely fascinating. A year, so, a, a year, a year or so later, uh, somebody sent us something, which was that um, I never knew that, that you, know, what, you could be on Waze and ha- be in conversation with other people on Waze. It turned out that there was a standstill on the 405 and two people having a conversation while on ways. One of them says, heaven is a traffic jam on the 405. And I thought, my God, we got, we're now part of the culture. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. Of course, as you know, for most people, um, a traffic jam on the 405 is a nightmare, but therein lies the irony and the beauty of this. So, um, I am curious, what was Mindy's response when the film got nominated for an Oscar and, of course, then won? Uh, she was there with us that night. Um, you know, all of this, you know, the, the, we, by then we had sort of like really become friends. Uh, and, and every time I did an edit, I showed it to her um, because I didn't want to. Um, I knew I was, I was dealing in, uh, you know, in very sensitive material. And and the last thing I wanted to do was was create more issues, and um, so she was very much part of the filmmaking and, I, and the filmmaking process. And every time I showed her an edit, I gave her a, a pad and a pencil and said, "Just you know, if if I've crossed the line, if I've done something that wasn't entirely accurate, let me make a note. Let me know." And and the first time we did this, uh, and she sort of write something. Um, and I thought, oh, man, what did I do? I messed this up. Um, I looked at the pad at the end of the, sc- the screening, and it said, too much Mindy. Um, so, you know, so we, we were sort of in cahoots together, um, and uh, and all of it was this, you know, this magical thing that, you know, you couldn't remotely have even fantasized. Um you know, and it and it changed her life, uh, you know, considerably. Uh, uh, she's actually quite different today than she was at that time. Um, she's much more confident, and I think the film actually helped that. Well, that's understandable because you you know you were able to shine a light on how talented she is and and yeah. what a you know survivor she is that she you yeah. know has so much tenacity to push forward. So, um, and I have to say it's. I, of course, I know documentary filmmakers who will show, you know, a cut of their of their film to the people involved, um, you know, before finishing. But to be showing her cuts along the way, uh, um, that's super interesting. So um, it's wonderful that you had that kind I of think relationship. You know, I, I think I think all of it. You know, I think I, I think if you're asking people to be as revealing as I am. Um, and I do bore down. Uh, if, if I'm asking that of somebody, then I have to deliver that. I have to give them that. And, and so, um, you know, I, I don't mind revealing my, what I'm doing because of what they've given me in order to make this film. 
Well, that makes sense. And I, you know, that's a great way to think about it. Um, so I also would love to know, I mean, can you tell us what about the moment when you found out that the film, you know, was nominated <laughs> and then it won? Um, you know, getting the, the nomination thing was actually the bigger deal for me. You know, and, and it's funny because yesterday they, they announced nominations. Um, so we relived it. Um, it, it turned out that we were in New York at that point. So, um, in LA, if you want to find out who's nominated, you get up at five in the morning in New York, not so hard, eight o'clock. So we, you know, we were in a hotel room, um, uh, heard it announced and just, I mean, that was the highest moment to me. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I was always I was always confident in the film. Actually, I was I wasn't confident in the process. You know, going from seventy eight to ten to five uh, to one film. Um, you know, how how does that work? And again, you know, you're you're dealing with with giants uh, uh, that are putting a lot of resources against it. Um, but you know, just. Uh, um, I always felt that if, you know, the, the fewer other films there were, the better chance it was. Not because I didn't think the other films were great. I do. Um, but I just wanted you to see it. I didn't, want to be, I, I didn't want to be disqualified because it was passed over. And so the lawn signs were an attempt to be sure that you would see it. And if after seeing it, you decided that there were others that were better suited to, for, for a nomination, that was fine. I just wanted to make sure we weren't passed. Um, and winning it was just, you know, it remains this, uh, you know, this thing that every so often I'll think about it and smile and go, isn't life amazing? Could never, ever, ever. I mean, I was a business dude. Um, you could never have conceived this. I'm just, you know, it always makes me smile to sort of think about how how life takes turns that you could never have predicted. Well, certainly well-deserved in your case. I mean, definitely. And I would um, like to take a moment and talk a little bit about the pros and cons of making a short uh, documentary versus a feature. And, mm -hmm. you know, for anyone who doesn't know, in this case, um, short is defined as 40 minutes or less correct to uh yes, to be you know in the running for an oscar so 40 minutes is still a pretty sizable film but for you what are what are the pros and cons of um that length so i, I never set out to make a film of any length you know you set out to make a film um what i find uh what i find and may and maybe making 30 second commercials for all those years helps um is that, you know, there is this process of addition by subtraction that, you know, once you start to broom out things that are merely interesting or merely a beautiful shot or, or this or that, and you stay focused on what is it that pulls and that, you know, pushes the narrative forward and you get rid of everything that doesn't do that that 86-minute film becomes 61 minutes, and 61 minutes becomes 53 minutes, and 53 minutes becomes... And, you know, and, and so the, just the whittling comes down to 40 minutes. Um, once, I mean, once the film clearly is not going to be a feature, at that point, 
you know, you don't want to be in a nowhere's in a no man's land between 40 and a feature. And so at that point, you you start to look at it as a 40 minute film. Um, I like 40 minutes a lot. Uh, the films that I make tend to be portraits. Um, and uh, and so 40 minutes to me is enough time. To, you know, so my films are, are very simple in that they are about a person. Um, and 40 minutes is enough time to get to know somebody really, really well. Um, and because there's a restriction to 40 minutes, and I like that, I like that a 30-second commercial has to be 30 seconds, not 31, 30. And 40 minutes has to be 40 minutes. It forces you to be very selective about what you put in there. And, um, uh, and so uh, as a portrait, as a, as a format for portraiture, um, I like 40 minutes because it's long enough but not too long. Um, and, uh, and again, I've, you know, I don't set out to do something that's 40 minutes until it's until such a point where it reveals itself to be 40 minutes. Um, but I like that. I like that length. Um, the number of times I sit in a the movie theater and go, oh, if I could only take 20 minutes out of this movie, it'd be great. Um, you know, I, um, one of the nicest things that, that was said during a screening was I wanted more. And I thought that's exactly what I want you to say. I exactly, and, I want you to want more. And what about placing it? Because it seems like, um, I mean, I agree with you that um, shorter is more often than not better, especially these days with shrinking attention spans. But what about sure. the opportunities? Of course, in your case, it's an Oscar winner. So of course it's going to get, you know, it's going to be available to people. But but um, for other people that make shorts that, that don't reach, you, you know, your level of, um, you know, uh, prestige, uh, placing them with streamers and, and whatnot seems to be a challenge. And I, I wonder if you have any insight to that, um, although you may not because your films have been so successful. Well, Well, interestingly, though, you've never seen them on a streamer. So... Uh, so, you know, the, the first one was bought by HBO. Uh, Heaven is Traffic Jam was, I, I can show you the most laudatory letters of rejection. Um, and even after it won the Academy Award, the same streamers that turned it down the first time turned it down a second time. And so it's not a wow, function I, I'm of, astonished. And so it, it's not a function of quality, um, you know, the, the quality of the film and, and, and the fact that people were moved by it um, is, is in all of those, those beautiful rejection notes. Um, you know, what happens is that, you know, the, uh, uh, that each of those streamers has information as to what it is that their uh, viewers want. And if we happen to be in the middle of true crime uh, or celebrity documentaries or this or that, then, you know, the, the stat doesn't come back that they're looking for a film about anxiety and depression in, in the art world. Um, and that is really what you're, what you're playing against, is not, a, not somebody's taste level, not whether somebody appreciates your film, but whether it fits 
into uh, you know the the you know the complex statistical information they have as to what their viewers are looking for, and so um, it's not personal. Um, <clears throat> you know they're running a business and they will run their business according to you know to to the information they have about their clients. Um, the films that I want to do um, are not particularly wanted by a streamer. Um, it's been proven over and over again. Um, and so you, you know, as a filmmaker, you know, you at some point have to make a decision as to whether who you're making the film for, you know, if, you know, if, um, if you, if you're making it to get on a streamer, you can sort of do an analysis um, of, of what they've determined they want. Um, and, and you can go in that direction or, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, I've been part of the, uh, the filmmaker industrial complex for a lo long time. And, and when I decided to do this rather than be a producer, um, I decided I was going to make the films I want to make. So, um, so I don't, you know, uh, so they're, they, they will be, you know, they will, they will tend to be personal and, and not necessarily fit a matrix of what the industry wants. Um, and that's, you know, you just have to buy into that uh, if that's if that's the kind of filmmaking you want to do. Yeah, and I might add there, they may not be the kinds of films that streamers think audiences want, but they may be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we are um, nearing the end of the time that we have to talk today, but I do want to just ask a few remaining things. I'm going to kind of um, uh, combine a few things. So one is... Um, are you currently working on another film? If you are, are you comfortable telling us what it's about? Um, also, do you have any websites, social media handles, things like that you want to share so people can um, follow your career? Um, so there's a, like, there's frankstifle.com, um, and you can see uh, bits and pieces of a couple of films. You'll see my photographs, a little bit of my writing. Um, so you can see that. Um, could I don't you spell really, your last not, name, please? Sure. Could you just Frank spell your Stifel, last name? Frank Stifel, S-T-I-E-F-E-L. Thank you. And so, you, you know, it's not, I'm not very religious about updating it, but you'll get a sort of broad sense as to, you know, the stuff that I've done over the years. Um, uh, so currently, what am I doing? Um I was doing a film uh, that I've put on the shelf for right now. Uh, I was doing a film about another artist, a, uh, a street artist who got uh, ALS 20-something years ago um, and uh, was working on it until COVID. I spent a lot of time in, a in his hospital room. Uh, and we, we put together a, a rough cut and decided to, to walk away from it for right now because um, nobody, nobody had changed over the course of the time that, you know, a film, of, you know, something has to happen and nothing had happened. Uh, the relationships that he had were identical to the relationships he had at, at the beginning of it are now at the end of it. Um, nothing, nobody had realized anything. There had been no, no movement whatsoever. And uh, so at some point decided, let's just, you know, rather than force 
a, a, a film to, you know, to force a film to be something. Why don't we just wait until something happens? Uh, and, and so the film is about, about the artist and his father. And so their, their relationship has to become something. And when it does, and, and I don't know what it is, uh, when it becomes something, then, you know, we'll continue filming it. Um, so that's on the documentary front. Um, when COVID hit, uh, I'm not very good unless I've got a project to do. Um, so I decided I would teach myself how to write a screenplay. And so um, uh, I spent a couple of years writing a screenplay on Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405. And uh, it attracted a significant producer. Um, we have cast someone to be the Mindy character. We're now looking to to cast the rest of the film. Um, and uh, and so that's been, you know, an interesting learning curve as well. I think I'm on version 15 right now. Um, so those are the two things that I'm I'm working on right now. Well, I would I would absolutely love to see that film when it's ready. And I have so many more questions I would love to ask you, but unfortunately we're out of time. So I just want to thank you again so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. And again, compliment you on your you know wonderful filmmaking. And uh, I hope everyone listening will check out you know your films. So thank, thank you. you again. All right. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks, Bye. Take care, Frank. Thank Thanks, you. Heather, for all the good work you're doing. <laughs> okay. All right. And-, and be well, everyone. Bye now. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.